Oh, what a joy it's been so far this morning, right? Uh, again, we've had the, the kids up here, we've had the kids back there, uh, we've had the kids greeting this morning, right? Because again, remember the church uh, is, is not an age, but when you give your heart over to Christ is when you become part of the church. And so again, we don't wait until we're older to follow him. We follow him when we make that choice to actually follow him. And so... Uh, it's been a pleasure to have the youth be able to, to do this with us. Um, so I mentioned earlier about a registry uh, and this idea that, again, when you, you get married, right, you go on to the registry and you put down all those different items uh, that you're, you're looking to, to put in your home and you allow people that are coming to your wedding to be a part of that, to, to be able to purchase those different items. Well, one of the things that, you know, is pretty standard uh, is that a couple will, will buy plates, I'm not just talking like the everyday we eat off of these plates, but we're talking about the fancy, you know, uh, dinner china type plates. You know which ones that I'm talking about? Uh, the ones that like we really only pull out maybe like once or twice a year. And then when we're done with them, we put them in that sacred cabinet or hutch. And they're so special that we actually cover them so they don't get dust on them. Right. That, those are the ones that, that I'm talking about. Now, it's funny, though, because those plates are typically more expensive, they're typically heavier, uh, and, and we try to make sure that like nothing happens with them. You know, like as you go to put them away, it's like this, like, oh, oh, oh okay, they're, 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 in the, they're in the protective case now, right? And, and isn't that kind of funny too? Because we, we put them out for people who really have been eating at our dinner table probably all year anyway. You know, it's like our family, our parents, our, our siblings, extended family, grandparents. You know, it's like we haven't seen them all year, but now all of a sudden, once or twice a year, we're like, well, we're going to get really fancy, right? And we're really going to treat them to something special, and then we decorate the table and make it look all kind of nice. Or maybe some of you have had that room in the house. You know that room in the house that nobody's allowed to go into? Right. And as a kid, it became that dare of who was willing to cross the threshold, sit in the couch and run back without getting caught. Yeah. But most likely you probably got caught because the moment you sat in the chair, you created that little bit of a dent and your parents or your grandparents knew somebody had crossed into the room, right? So we have these things that we consider to be sacred and we consider it to be holy uh, and, and for good measure because a lot of times, you know, we pull out those special plates when we really want to celebrate. And a lot of times we do that at the holidays like Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter. And, and we want to say, this is a time that we want to recognize. This is a time that's going to stand out and it's something different. And we, we really just want to celebrate together uh, as a family. Um, and so we're starting a new series today called The Holiness of God. And, and I don't think when we talk about the word holiness, I, I don't think as, as Christians that we take that word lightly. I think there is a, a meaning to us that we understand. But what I want us to realize by the end of this sermon series is I really want to fully flush out what does God's holiness mean? And I want it to be flushed out in sense that as we understand God's holiness, that we then understand who we are 
before a holy God. I, I pray that there is a healthy brokenness as we go through these sermons of just constantly coming before our Heavenly Father and saying, God, I understand who you are and I understand who I am. And praise goes up to him. That's, so that's my desire as we begin to, to work through this. Now, uh, Silas did a wonderful job of setting the stage of where we're going to be. Again, God has created the world. He's made light from darkness. He's separated land from water. He's, he has created the animals. He's created the different types of plants. Uh, and then he puts man into the garden and he tells man to rule over it and he says it's not good for him to be alone and so he he gives him eve and so together they are to be in the garden but then what happens the serpent tempts eve and and she eats of it and she gives some to adam and so from eating this they have disobeyed from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and so their eyes are open their nakedness is understood uh and all of this world of which God has created has now been corrupted by this act of sin. And so that's where we get to now in, in Genesis chapter 3. So if you're still in this, the Bible there, you can move over to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 14 here. Again, they have been tempted. They have eaten of it. And now God has come into the picture to deal with this circumstance. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all of the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing with pain. You will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it, you were taken. For dust you are into dust you will return. So they eat of it and there's these consequences. And so he turns to the serpent and he says, listen, because of what you've done, you are going to be cursed and you are going to slither along the ground and you are going to eat of the dust for the rest of your life. And that idea of eating of the dust was symbolic for this idea of defeat. And then he turns to the serpent again and he says, not only are you going to be eating of the dust, this is going to be a constant reminder to you that one day your head is going to be crushed. And though you will strike the heel of the one that is coming to crush you, it will be a temporary wound. It will be a, 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 a setback in a sense of the way that we think something's not going to happen. But ultimately, he's going to come and he is going to destroy you. And then he turns to Eve and he says, this joy of childbirth that I was going to give you is now going to become one that is corrupted with pain. And so as you give birth and labor, what was to just be a joyous act is going to be a constant reminder of what you've done. 
And now you're going to have this desire for your husband. You're, you're going to have this desire for dominance. And there's going to be this relationship struggle that will now exist between you and your husband. And he turns over to Adam and he says, look, you, you didn't listen to me. I told you not to do this and you failed and she gave it to you. And so this life of, of having dominance over the garden, of caring and, and, t- and tending to it, now it's going to be one of painful struggle and toil. You're going to constantly spending your days by the sweat of your brow. Your, your hands are going to be in the dirt, working tirelessly for survival. And ultimately now physical death will come upon you and you will return back to the ground from which you have come. And so out of this, what has happened? Sin has produced within humanity a death. It has produced a a physical death that, as I said, we're going to come back. And there's now also a spiritual death that will occur. It produced a conflict between man and woman, between man and God. And now we have this relational tug of war that will constantly exist between us and God, who gets to be God. And this constant relationship struggle between man and woman over how it is that we are to live. And so things like birth and pain, uh, birth and work, which was designed to be fulfilling and designed to be one of happiness, has now been intermingled with labor and struggle and a constant reminder of what the fall has happened to us. So that's where we're at with, with the consequences. And so let's continue to read here in verse 20. Now Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So there's this small little interlude here where he says, all right, Eve, you will be the mother of all living things. That when your name is mentioned, that all of humanity will recognize this one single place that we've come to. And again, they recognize their nakedness and and God said, I... I'll do better than the fig leaves that you guys have woven together. I will, I, will, I will take a skin of an animal and I will cover over you. So that way the shame and the embarrassment of your nakedness will now be hidden. And then we continue here now in verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so God has this acknowledgement. He says, listen, what you've done, you can no longer eat from the tree of life. Uh, there, there's a level of understanding now. There's, there's this, this sense of this higher spiritual understanding that exists, that you're, you're striving for the same attributes as God. And God says, we, we can't have this. And if you were to eat from this tree of life, it would offer an immortality that was not designed for you. And so he kicks them out. And he sets the angels there and the flaming sword to make sure that if there was any thought that Adam and Eve would come back into that garden and possibly taste that fruit, that God made absolutely sure 
that was not going to happen. So this is where we see the holiness of God. And you're probably thinking to yourself, where is the holiness of God in here? It's not even the word holy is not even mentioned, Adam. Well, there's a very much in here that tells us about the holiness of God. And so we need to first understand the word holiness means to be separate. It means to be set apart. And it's, it's very close in relation to another word that means to, to be cut off. So when we talk about the holiness of God, God is separate from the sin of this world. God is a perfect moral being. God is perfect in his purity of morality. And it's that perfection is what separates you and I from God. And it is a vast chasm that exists that just goes on and on and on and on. That God stands as this one level and we are way, way down at the bottom in terms of purity. It's a never unending line of God's morality. But it's not just this idea of separating us from sin. But when we also talk about holiness and being holy, there is a distinction. There is an understanding that one thing is separate from something else. That, that God is in a class of his own and there is nothing that will ever enter into the same class as God. And so when, when God creates his creation, there is no quality, there is no characteristic, there is no creature, there is no human that will ever be in the same category as God. And so when we look at this passage, we start to see right out of the get-go the holiness of God. Because again, Satan tempts them. And what does he tempt them with? He says, listen, if you eat of this, if you taste this, you will be like God. You will have an understanding like him. You'll live like him. You'll function like him. God is holding back from you is what he's telling Adam and Eve. So just take of it. And all that God is can be yours. Now it's true that we are made in the image of God. Who we are as individuals stems from that. The characteristics, the nature of who we are comes from who God is. So things like love. And, and, and kindness and forgiveness and mercy and justice. All of those are things that God has turned over to man and said, part of me is now going to be part of who you are. But there are also other parts that we say are, are, are in the theological world. We call them non-communicable or communicable attributes. There are certain attributes of God that only belong to God alone, right? We talk about the omnis. God is, God is, is omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient. Those things are reserved only for God. You and I can never have that. So when we talk about God being all-powerful, again, God does whatever he wants, right? Man has the capacity to create, but we can only create from that which God has already created. God created this world out of nothing. 
You and I do not have that capacity to do that. God, God had the ability to, to make the, the sun stand still. We can define daylight savings time, but I can't tell the sun stop moving. I, I can water and harvest my crops, but I don't have the ability to make rain come down from the heavens. Only God can do that. That's what we talk about when we say God is all powerful. God is all present. Proverbs 15, 3 tells us the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. You know, my, my, my kids are teenagers now, and I feel like I've just become a professional chauffeur, driving them from one event back and forth. And I'm constantly saying, can't you kids drive yet? I mean, how I wish I could be all over the place all at once. But I can't. But God is everywhere. And God sees everything that goes on. So when we think that we're hiding in our room and the, the lights are off and nobody knows, it's true. You and I may not know, but God certainly does because God is there. Whether you want him to be or not, God is present. God is all-knowing. Matthew 10.30 tells us that he has the hairs on our head are numbered. I mean, think about that. God could look at you and say, I know exactly how many hairs are on your head. I mean, how many of you have struggled to remember the last thing that your spouse had said to you? And it was only a minute ago that they gave instructions. God is eternal. God is self-existent. Meaning he doesn't need anyone to exist. Nobody created God. God has always been. And I am finite. Again, I am only created because God chose to create me. And as a created being, I am completely and totally dependent upon what God has chosen to do with me. Each and every moment of my day is contingent upon the hand of God in my life. That if God wants to snuff out the air from my lungs, he can choose to do that. We are created in the image of God, and it is not the other way around. But even those parts that God gives us, right? Things like love and justice, forgiveness and kindness. Even those aspects of who we are, we still can't function from a level of moral purity that God does, right? I mean, I can temporarily love someone. I can temporarily administer justice. But I will not always love the way that I need to. And I will not always do justice the way that I need to. And there are times even when I love that my love is tainted by my sin. And it is actually more self-serving than anything else. Because only God can ultimately love the way that anybody needs to love or be loved. Only God can administer justice the way that justice ultimately needs to be done. We... We only have merely a, a piece of being able to do what God is able to do. And so God creates a world without sin, right? And we disobey. Garden of perfection where us and God walk together and engage between creator and created has now been ruined. Arthur Lindsay wrote this in an article about holiness, talking about the disobedience of our sin. 
He says its ugliness creeps into our lives and we lose the sense of God's holiness. We lose the vision of that beauty. That ugliness touches upon all aspects of our lives, our relationships, our church, our families, our workplace, and our communities, and our way of life. Little by little, the holiness of God is tainted by our ongoing sins that exist. And so what does God do in the garden? He cuts off mankind. He says, you can no longer be in my presence. You don't have the right anymore to stand and walk with me and talk face to face. And he says, you need to get out of this garden at once. And don't even think about coming back. We have to understand that many times people will look at this and try to understand that that God is, God is vindictive and he is evil. Wouldn't, shouldn't have God tried, to, tried to, to, to get them to say they were sorry and just let it go? Again, God is not like us. We need to remember that. You know, but think about all the times in life we cut things off. We do it constantly, but yet when God does it, we get upset at him for what he's done. I mean, think about how many times you're cooking and you're chopping up fruits and vegetables or or you're cutting a piece of meat and you're you're separating the pieces of food that aren't good or that have gone bad. And what do you do? You throw them in the trash. Think about how many of you have played on a sports team and kids go out. And what does the coach have to do? The coach has to make cuts. He basically says to the kids that aren't going to help the team, I'm sorry, but there is no place for you on this team. Or how many times in a business someone has, to, has had to let somebody go or fire someone because they're not helping the company grow, right? We accept those as normal parts of our lives. But yet when God casts man out of his presence, we look at him and say, God, you are wrong for doing that. But see, what we often don't understand is that In God's punishment for us, there is always goodness. And just as much as God is just, he's also love. Because here's the thing. What if if Adam and Eve stayed? What if they would have been allowed to stay in that garden? Well, he, he said to them, he says, look, if you eat from the tree of life, you're going to live in a condition that I never designed for you to live in. You're going to eat from the tree of life and you're going to be given a level of immorality or or, or, uh, um, immortality. I'm sorry, you're going to be given an immortality that is now existing in a world of conflict and pain and strife. I, I, I can't allow you, Adam and Eve. I can't allow humanity to exist in that because, see, that was also never part of God's plan. In Matthew 25, 31 to 33, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All of the nations will be gathered before him and he separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. 
And then in Revelation 21, he talks about there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that is coming down. And in verse four, what does he say about this new world that's to come? He says he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See, see, God had to banish us from the garden. God needed to do that because he said, I have designed something that is to come, that is better for my children, that is really going to be one of perfection. But if you take of the fruit from the tree of life, then you're going to live in a condition that I never wanted for you. And so I need you out of here. What about the other punishments? What about what he does to Adam and Eve? And he says, is it right that, that, that women have to, have to bear a child through pain and, and nine months of anguish? Is it right that man has to go out every day into the field and struggle by the sweat of his brow? Well, again, what, what is God? God is holy and God is distinct and God is separate from you and me. God is creator of this universe. That is a non-communicable attribute. God is the creator and sustainer of this world. So what that means is that gives him the power and the authority to do whatever God chooses to do. So when God says, I have set a standard of law, I have given you an act of obedience to follow and you have violated that, you have broken that law, then yes, God has every right to step in how he sees fit. And there is no room for us to argue. There is no room for us to seek an appeal to seek a, a second counsel or anything else because there is nowhere else to go because God is both judge and jury of our lives and of this world. But as much as I say that, guys, we, we have to understand, like I said, we can dole out justice to this world, but it is only God who can do it perfectly. And God will often temper his justice with grace. And so just to talk a little bit more here about this. We've already said that God banishing man from the garden was, is really an act of saving us. It was an act of saving us from the eternal destruction that would exist. And when Adam and Eve stood there wrapped in their fig leaves, embarrassed of their nakedness, God said, I want to cover over your shame. I don't want you to have to walk around like that. And so I'm going to take the skin of an animal and I'm going to take this and cover you. But understand, it's going to cost the blood of someone else to be able to do that for you. And when the angels stood there and the flaming sword went back and forth, making sure that they could never enter back into the garden. We have to understand that eventually Christ would come. And Christ would become that access point for us to enter back into the presence of God. And 
when God promised that he was going to crush the head of the serpent, he did that. Because when Christ went to the cross and he was nailed and he had the crown of thorns placed upon his head and, and his blood was shed and he cried out, it is finished. That is where man had found the ultimate forgiveness from God. And that is where sin was ultimately defeated because sin no longer had a power over you and I in this world and in the world to come. So when God was in the garden and he cast us out, we understand that God is good and God is holy. And in that goodness and in that holiness, he tempers his justice and love with grace that covers over all of us through the bloodshed of a savior who loved us. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy and it's a, it's a phenomenal book. It's not very long. But if you ever have a chance to read it, I highly encourage you to do so. But Tozer, Tozer writes this. He says, the teaching of Christianity is that man chose to be independent of God and confirmed his choice by deliberately disobeying a divine command. This act violated the relationship that normally existed between God and his creature. It rejected God as the ground of existence and threw man back upon himself. Thereafter, he became not a planet revolving around the central sun, but a sun in his own right, around which everything else must revolve. Doesn't that just hit us square on the head? We so often think that I am God and I am the center of this universe, and everything and everyone in this world is to cater to my needs. And Tozer says, we have so gotten that wrong because there is only one son. There is only one God that exists. So when we talk about the holiness of God, as I said, I don't think we take it lightly, but I sure hope we truly understand what that means. Because there is only one God. There is no other God. We cannot dictate God, we cannot create, we cannot replicate God, we cannot define who God is. God has done that all by himself, and he tells us who he is. And as I said, it is not the other way around. So let us understand that when we talk about the holiness of God, let us realize that he is God and we are not. But I'll tell you what. We can praise God in his holiness because in his holiness is where we find our salvation. Let's pray. God, we use the word holy so often. And uh, Lord, we understand that, that it is something sacred. It is something to not be taken lightly, but... Um, God, let us truly realize today where we stand before you, that you are all powerful and all love at the same time. Lord, we are frail human beings that when we stand in your presence should be, should be face down at your feet, crying out to you for mercy and forgiveness because we don't deserve anything that we ever have. 
but the fact that you give us life, the fact that you allow us to breathe, the fact, Lord, that you, you welcome us back into your gardens through the access of Christ is a miracle in itself. So let us worship you. Let us give you the praise that you deserve, Father. And let it not be a, a one-time Saturday afternoon on the way home, but let it be a daily part of our lives until you call us home. So thank you for being a holy God and loving me through that. Amen.